0: The in the the lane. I'm Tom Ford and welcome to part two of this episode of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast focusing on the life and career of Albert Tibby Cotter with my special guest Max Burnell. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to part one available on the podcast now. I have this theory, Max, uh, having read your book, um, that in many ways Tibby was the antithesis of uh, the Golden Age player. Um, he was brash and unapologetic when it came to his extremely fast bowling. Um, and he was a character or a larrikin who celebrated hard off the field and um, was Tibby unique amongst his peers?
1: Um, that's that's hard to say. I mean, he was he was not alone in being boisterous. He was not alone in um, enjoying a drink. But there were not so many who had such an open disregard for etiquette. You know, one of the stories we uncovered doing the book, and I'm amazed that this isn't better known, um, is that he was actually uh, locked up in jail uh, the week before the first test of the 1907-08 Ashes series. And what happened was that there was a custom in those days that um, the touring MCC team would play something called an Australian 11 in Brisbane, And that typically was a chance for a few Queenslanders to play a representative game and for the test selectors to try out one or two fringe candidates. Uh, But they must have thought Cotter needed some practice or needed to prove he could still bowl fast or something, and they picked him in the team. There was almost no um, uh, cricket played because it rained so much. So on the Saturday night, Cotter went out drinking with a bunch of friends. And after you've been doing that for several hours, there's nothing more natural than walking back towards your hotel, loudly singing at the top of your voice. Uh, Cotter at that point was approached by a policeman who asked him to be quiet. Uh, Not realising that the man was a policeman, Cotter thumped him. Uh, And so he spent Sunday... Uh, in jail in Brisbane for assaulting a policeman the uh, magistrate saw him on the Monday morning and said well uh, I assume you're uh, you're wanting to play in the test match next week so I'm going to fine you two pounds and off he went um, so he was he was kind of pretty indisciplined uh, in his uh, private life and that, leads us inevitably to Lucy Hepworth, uh, the barmaid from Bradford, uh, who uh, insisted that she and Cotter became engaged during the 1909 tour. Um, We don't know an awful lot about that relationship, except that uh, it seems to have interested Cotter greatly uh, while he was in England on the 1909 tour and then dropped out of his mind altogether when he left. Um, An interesting coda to that story is that after Cotter departs, uh, Lucy Hepworth is sent to France for a period by her family. Uh, And this gives rise to all kinds of stories or speculation uh, that she was sent there to have the child uh, which was then placed in a French orphanage, when, at which point she came back to England. She finished up uh, marrying uh, very happily and having a family, although she always kept uh, the Australian team hatband that Cotter gave her as a present on the 1909 tour. Uh, so there's a possibility that there are um, uh, a bunch of Frenchmen wandering around today who don't realise that they're descended from an Australian fast bowler.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it's fair to say had uh, social media existed um, uh, in Tibby's day, his his career might not have even got off the ground. Well, I'm, I'm resisting the the obvious
1: comparisons with Shane Warne. Um, uh, Cotter was... Um, notoriously a ladies' man, he was good-looking, single, from a well-to-do family, famous, uh, very athletic. Um, after his death, um, there was a ceremony um, at the Sydney Cricket Ground to unveil a plaque in his memory, uh, and a wreath of flowers was placed on it. it. was anonymous but was said to come from his many women friends. Uh, Quite who these people are, we have no idea. He was a, you could argue the Shane Warne of his day, but that's a, it's a facile comparison, but there's something in
0: it. Max, let's, uh, we've spoken about his bowling, obviously, uh, but let's also touch on his batting um, because it, to me, having read your book, it seems like his batting was much like his bowling. He was brash uh, and highly entertaining to crowds, Um, perhaps he was the first modern tail ender. He had this philosophy of just coming out and swinging and uh, often to great effect, and he would routinely add 20 or 30 late valuable runs to the team's total. Um, Is this a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I think one thing we need to remember is that if you look at coaching books from this period, Most of them discourage bowlers from batting. They will all say things like, it's important for you to be fresh and supple when you bowl, so don't waste time at the crease. Just have a swing, get a couple of runs, get out, get on with your job. Uh, It was almost this philosophy that bowlers shouldn't tire themselves out batting. Um, He certainly could bat, but he preferred to slog. Um, And sometimes it came off spectacularly. Um, In the 1911-12 first class season he got about 350 runs at an average of 25, which is almost edging up into the all-rounder category. He hit a quick 82 against South Australia. Uh, In the next game for New South Wales against Victoria, uh, he hit 79 in very quick time. He got to 50 in 18 minutes, which, if you go by the clock, is still the fastest half-century in first-class cricket in Australia. But you have to bear in mind that they bowled a lot more balls per hour then than they did now. So in those 18 minutes, uh, he faced 31 balls. Uh, So by by balls faced, it's not a dramatically fast half-century but certainly in terms of the clock, it it, it hasn't been beaten. He had some phenomenal success in first-grade cricket. Um, He played an innings for Glebe against Waverley, uh, where he scored 152 in 85 minutes with 16 sixes. And then the the following year, he scored 100 against the same opponents in an hour. So when he came off, he was spectacular. But consistent batting requires concentration, application and good decision-making, and those weren't his strengths.
0: Yeah, and it's a nice segue, actually, into my next question um, about his uh, most famous batting episode, uh, certainly as a test batsman at least, um, it came with a famous partnership he had with Jerry Hazlitt in December of the 1907-08 Ashes series, which was the first test um, in Sydney uh, where the two put on 56 runs as the number nine batting pair to win the match by two wickets. Very famous victory. Um, now, In your book, you sum up, in describing this episode, you sum up Cotter's overall approach to cricket, and I'd just like to quote you here. You write, Just as he bowled fast, with little regard for line and length, so he hit hard and high, without troubling about the niceties of building an innings. His match-winning effort in Sydney only emphasised what a wonderful cricketer might have existed if Cotter's superlative physical gifts had been bestowed on a man of a different temperament. Um, It just simply sounds, listening to you there, that he didn't quite, as a cricketer, maximise his potential.
1: Yeah, and I I feel like I'm going to sound like George Barber here, his school coach, um, who no doubt was frustrated by precisely that, that... Here was someone with just phenomenal natural talent who relied on that natural talent and not much else. Uh, and what that innings in, in 1907 showed was that if he needed to, he could get his head down and play a really important, sensible, match-winning innings. Um, but he preferred to slog. Uh, And similarly with his bowling, you know, you wonder if he'd ever taken the trouble to build on what he was born with, what kind of bowler he might have been. So, for example, um, there's no evidence that he ever intentionally made the ball change direction. He didn't swing it or cut it, he just flung it. Uh, he didn't have a slower ball, wasn't interested in the slower ball. He wasn't interested in expanding the range of his skills uh, because I guess then it would have been work and he wanted it to be fun. So, you know, you've got a guy just, and this is a period of cricket's history where you can do this uh, because. Um, there's not the same level of consistent professionalism that, that you see today. Um, you know, you could, if, if you had that kind of talent, then that probably was enough. Um, but he was inconsistent, he was unreliable, uh, he was phenomenal. Uh, but uh, you wonder what would have happened if he'd taken all that talent and tried to build on it.
0: Say I, 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 Whenever they start any Bolshevik stuff, I make a motion that we treat them rough. All those in favour say I, 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 I. mentioned earlier, Max, that if um, uh, modern cricket fans know anything about Tibby Cotter, um, it would be that he was the only Australian Test cricketer to have perished in the First World War. Uh, Well, if they know a second thing, it's most likely that he was a member of the infamous Big Six, Um, the six Test cricketers, Australian cricketers in 1912, who refused to tour England because of the dispute with the Australian Cricket Board over allowing them to select their own manager, a uh, process which had been... Uh, done repeatedly in the tours beforehand. Um, uh, The big six being Clem Hill, Victor Trumper, Warwick Armstrong, Sammy Carter, Vernon Ransford and Tibby Cotter. Um, This dispute effectively ended Tibby's test career um, along with Clem Hill and Victor Trumper. Uh, Warwick Armstrong, of course, came back after the war. Um, Max, was Tibby... Was he a a passionate advocate for the players having their own manager on tour Um, or was he just following his captain and being one of the boys? He
1: made very few statements about it. Um, I think one of the, the few statements he made was along the lines that you know the board was treating the players so badly that if it was a wet summer in england they'd have to swim home uh, because there wouldn't be enough money for the tour to buy a return passage um, so he wasn't engaging in it in a very advanced level i think what went on there was that his most endearing and relatable quality and this is another i have to say another parallel with shane Warren uh was loyalty you know if you were on cotter's side he stuck with you uh, and i think he was simply uh in in that episode demonstrating his loyalty to trumper in particular but also carter armstrong the people he'd been pl- hill the people he'd been playing with uh, and uh, if there was ever a choice between Uh, an institution and organisation, or his friends, he was going to side with his friends. Uh, And so I think this was really an expression of that aspect uh, of his character. Uh, And as you say, it it put an end to his international career, although, as it happens, um, his international career would have ended anyway, because after that 1912 tour, Australia didn't play another test until 1920.
0: Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a fair assessment. Um, well, let's have a look at his, uh, his statistics, his playing career as a whole. Um, as we've already mentioned, he made his um, test debut against England at the SCG in February 1903-04. He plays his final match against England at the MCG in February 1912. Uh, his entire first-class career spans from... 1901-02 uh, to 1913-14 season. Um, for the actual numbers, and I'll start with his bowling, of course, um, test career first. So he played 21 test matches. He bowled in 38 innings. Um, he threw down 4,633 deliveries, um, took 89 wickets for a total of 2,549 runs. And, um, His best bowling in an innings was uh, seven wickets for 148 runs, so expensive. Um, Best bowling for a test match was nine for 221. Um, His bowling average was 28.64, so quite high. Certainly, we think of modern bowlers today. uh, Glenn McGrath, I think, was about a 21. Um, Seven occasions he took... Uh, five wickets in an innings um his first class record 113 first class matches he bowled 19,565 deliveries took 442 wickets for a total of 10,730 runs best bowling as i mentioned before that seven for 15 spell against worcestershire um his bowling average in first class was a bit better, 24.27. And he took five wicket innings on 31 occasions and a 10-wicket match on four occasions. I'll just look briefly at his batting. Um, so in those 21 test matches, he um, he scored 457 runs as a tailender, ender high score of 45, so he never made a 50, batting average of 13.05. Um in his first class, 113 matches, as I mentioned, um two thousand four hundred and eighty-four runs as a batsman, high score of eighty-two, an average of sixteen point eight nine, and on four occasions he scored fifty. Um Max, what do you make of Tibby's uh, statistics? Um unlike many of his contemporaries who are still we still see at the top of Uh, many um, records and charts, Tibby's all but sort of disappeared. Uh, So what do you make of it all?
1: The one thing that you would say survives as an impact is that I think he's still certainly in the top 10 uh, Australian Test Bowlers uh, who've played a a comparable amount of cricket Uh, for strike rate. Um, I think he took, um, and I'm going purely from memory here, but, you know, a wicket roughly every 50 balls or so. Mm. Uh, And that puts him squarely in the top 10 for uh, strike rate. Uh, And that is probably a fair indication of um, the, the kind of cricketer he was. He was someone who... Uh, made a sharp impact rather than, uh, you know, built a solid, substantial body of achievement. Uh, But he made impacts that change games.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's move on to, uh, I suppose, the, the third and final act of Tibby's life. Um, and as we've alluded to, his first-class career was petering uh, to a close uh, during the 1913-14 season. Um, and then, of course, the First World War occurs and... Um, And as was expected of cricketers and sportsmen of the day, uh, Tibby signs up for the war effort. Um, Strangely, what is discovered when he signs up, he goes in for a medical and it's discovered that he's actually uh, quite blind, uh, which is remarkable. And initially he's um, discharged or not allowed to sign up. And then another... Uh, He does another medical and the doctor lets him slide through, perhaps owing to his celebrity. Um, What can you tell us about that, Max?
1: Yeah, well, he he went to join up and uh, there was a standard medical test and it found that he was, I think, very short-sighted in one eye, um, which in retrospect makes his cricket all the more remarkable because that – you think would have affected his depth perception which would have made batting quite a a challenge Uh, but that creates uh, a real dilemma for the recruiting staff because according to the criteria that they're obliged to apply uh, cotter is unfit but here's a guy who only a couple of years before Uh, has been opening the bowling for Australia in test matches, Uh, who's a renowned athlete, who's a first-grade rugby union player for Glebe. Uh, If he's unfit, who is fit? Mm. Uh, And, of course, there's a stigma attached to um, not signing up, which Cotter's anxious to avoid. Uh, And Cotter is also being used for publicity in in attracting new recruits. Bear in mind, there's no conscription. Mm. And uh, so, you know, Cotter's photograph is being used. Tripper Cotter's signed up. You've got to sign up. There's a lot of incentive to get Cotter in. And it seems to me that what happened was that they struck a compromise, where he was allowed to join, but in a non-combatant role. So you can sign up, but we're not giving you a gun, because who knows who you're going to shoot with. Um, And and that seems to have been the compromise they struck. We've got to let this guy in, because if Australia's opening bowler isn't fit, what signal does that send? But um, we don't want him shooting anyone. (laughs) So, so that seems to be in the compromise. So he, he joins um, as a stretcher bearer rather than a, uh, an armed combatant.
0: But he then signs up to the Light Horse Brigade, does he not? Which seems like a bit of an odd choice. Um, I mean, did he have a background with horses uh, or is it simply that uh, they were after a stretcher bearer?
1: Well, did he have a background in horse? He knew what a horse was because um, the Cotter home at Glebe had stables. Now, I don't know whether he used those as riding horses. My suspicion is this was before motor cars, so the horses were probably pulling a carriage, uh, but we just don't know. Uh, I suspect he joined the light horse purely because it was glamorous. And... um, if you had a, a level of celebrity, you were given some leeway in saying where you wanted to serve, and uh, uh, it's quite likely that he opted for the Light Horse, either because he knew someone who was there, uh, or because it was the the, the glamour unit.
0: Mm. So he uh, he goes off to war and he arrives in Gallipoli in 1915 um, in August, I think, which is about four months uh, after the initial slaughter in April. Uh, and the weather is just terrible. Uh, your book details how there's just constant storms of sleet and snow and um, the the troops are just, of course, miserable, including including Tibby, and he actually incurs an early misdemeanour, an official misdemeanour. What can you tell us about that?
1: I think he'd been on Gallipoli for two days when he was found guilty of uh, being too drunk to function and he was sentenced to a thing called field punishment number one. Now, there's so a couple of things to say about that. First, we don't know anything about the circumstances. Uh, it's possible that he just met up with a bunch of people who were keen to have a drink with the famous test cricketer and it got out of hand. Uh, it's also possible that his first uh, exposure to conflict had a shocking effect on him and he was drinking to nullify that. Uh, so there's that range of possibility, and we just don't know where he fell on that. Uh, he was sentenced to field punishment number one. This is a, a, a notorious subject in studies of the First World War. Um, field, what field punishment number one was is not written down anywhere, and that's because it was the discretion of the local commanding officer. Um, So there are horrendous stories that, you know, in some places field punishment number one involved, you know, being tied to some object within range of enemy guns for a period of an hour to convince you to act better next time. Uh, You know, in other places, it was just performing mundane but unpleasant duties. Uh, We just don't know. Um, But... I guess the other point to make about it was that Cotter in this respect um, is not untypical. And I talk about the layers of mythology that that smother this. And this is an area uh, where whenever I talk about it, I get uh, extraordinary heated uh, adverse comments from a particular group of people who are determined to believe that the Anzacs were the epitome of fine, upright, noble soldiers. Um, The fact is there are academic studies of the First World War that show conclusively that the Australian forces had the worst disciplinary record of any of the Allied soldiers. And that ranged from relatively trivial things like the refusal of... um, the lower-ranked soldiers to salute their superiors whenever they walked past uh, to the more serious end of things like desertion. Um, And the paradox of the Australian soldiers in the First World War is that on the whole, they were phenomenally good at the fighting bit and incredibly messy and undisciplined at all the non-fighting stuff. Uh, and Cotter fits quite neatly into that pattern. Uh, it's not his only offence. He gets uh, goes on leave to Cairo um, after Gallipoli and just goes missing for three days. He just goes on a bender in Cairo for three days and gets punished for that. So he's a very messy soldier, but he would argue, and I think with some justice, good at the bits that mattered.
0: I think your assessment is entirely accurate. Um, I mean, when you think about it, you know, um, here they are sending off large groups of young men uh, overseas for the first time, uh, which must have been extremely exciting for many of them. In fact, Tibby, Tibby would have been one of the most experienced. Uh, I think at this point of his life, mm. he'd been overseas on two other large trips uh, cricketing yeah. tours obviously um and so he would have been one of the more experienced but for a majority of them uh, and i'm certainly not saying it was fun but in between away from the conflict um they would have certainly had uh time for lots of merriment and this is what tibby finds um so i think the following year he's um uh, relocated to Egypt where the weather is a bit better than when he first arrived and it leads him to partake in many cricket matches, um, which not only uh, boys everyone's spirits, certainly does Tibby's, and naturally he's seen as um, a celebrity um, uh, in that field. Um, and through all this and through his efforts um as a stretcher bearer, his reputation is really restored, is it not?
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So I, I, we need to touch a bit on what a stretcher bearer does. Uh, so typically in uh, an assault on an enemy position, the first wave of attacking soldiers leads off. Typically, there are very high casualties in that first wave. And the second wave is actually the stretcher bearers. They come and pick up what they can. And we tend to think of, because stretcher bearers are non-combatants, we tend to think of that as somehow being safer than actually going into action with a gun. It's it's actually more dangerous hmm. because you're upright, you're carrying a heavy load, you're slow. Um and you're in range of the enemy guns, and you are an easy target. So being a stretcher bearer is incredibly hazardous, uh, because if you're um, a soldier uh, approaching an enemy position with a gun, you can crouch down, you can lie down, you can crawl, you can make yourself a difficult target. Stretcher bearers can do none of that. In some parts of the war, at some times there are anecdotal, there's anecdotal evidence that both sides had a tacit agreement not to shoot each other's stretcher bearers, but you couldn't count on that. And it didn't happen all the time. Um, so really your job as a stretcher bearer is to go in when the guns are still firing to identify wounded men and bring them back. Cotter first comes to attention at the Second Battle of Gaza, um, where there are numerous reports, including in the Australian official war history, uh, of what a phenomenal job he does under heavy fire, going in to identify and return casualties. Um, And Um, The bravery that he showed on that occasion is is remarked upon in in many different places. Curiously, um, not in any official reports from his unit. He's never mentioned in dispatches or recommended for a a decoration or anything like that. And and possibly that's because the officers uh, resented his attitude to um, life away from the front uh, but we, we can't really know. Uh, but he certainly established a, a, a reputation as being immensely brave under fire uh, in a job that was inherently very hazardous.
0: So, Max, um, uh, l- let's talk about Tibby's death. Um, so, it happens at the famous Battle of Beersheba uh, on the 17th of October 1917. Um, and what's interesting about this to us is that it is clouded in mystery how it actually occurred. Um, uh, We know that he was shot dead, um, but perhaps to maintain morale amongst troops and Australians back home, um, his death or the manner in which it occurred was little reported. Um, which has led to conflicting reports of what actually led to the fatal shot. Um, What can you tell us about it?
1: Well, it's a very... um, It's a puzzle. Um, The Battle of Bathsheba happens in October, and Bathsheba is statistically very important, strategically, not statistically, very important, Uh, because it has wells. Uh, And the Australians are travelling with horses and camels quite apart from the men, and they need access to the wells. There are no wells for hundreds of miles past Bathsheba, uh, so it's critical they get there. It's also critical they get there on that day because um, the Turks might uh, abandon Bathsheba and poison the wells on the way out, uh, which renders them useless. So it has to happen on the day. Now, the way the light horse operate is they're not cavalry. They're not trained to fight on horseback. Instead, they're trained to ride to a position, dismount, and fight. Uh, So they're they're light mobile infantry rather than horseback fighters. But the commanding officers decide uh, General Chevelle decides that the only way to get to Besheba and take Besheba before nightfall is just to charge. Mm. So um, a cavalry charge is launched at Besheba. It's the last thing the Turks expect. They're overwhelmed. The fighting takes a couple of hours. It's all very quick. All we know is that at the end of it, Cotter's dead. Now, the reason that background's important is that there's no role for a stretcher-bearer in a cavalry charge. Mm. There's nothing for him to do. So we don't know whether he, which is possible, joined in the charge uh, and was shot in the course of that uh, or whether something else happened. And there's really no way of unravelling that mystery. What we do know is that all the stories about his death that have traditionally been told are wrong. So the one that got most circulation was a story that Bert Oldfield used to tell, uh, that Cotter had been in a trench, uh, couldn't, wanted to check what he'd seen through the periscope, so put his head up over the trench and got shot. Now, there are no trenches and periscopes at Beesheba. The story's probably told to reflect the fact that Cotter isn't the smartest and doesn't know how to use a periscope, Um, but um, it's plainly nonsense, Uh, and in any event, Bert Oldfield was serving on the Western Front, so he would have heard this forthhand at best. So... We, we just don't have a reliable first-hand account and there's no official account of what happened. Now, what we do know is that Bathsheba was an incredibly unpleasant conflict because, amongst other things, uh, a large number of Turkish soldiers surrendered. And after surrendering, one of them produced a gun and shot uh, a couple of Australians. And that led to a massive reprisal in which a large number of Turkish prisoners were killed. Um, It's well documented. It's not well publicized because, again, it doesn't sit nicely with the way we want to think about Anzacs. Um, But these things happen in war. and one of the accounts of this episode says that one of the men who was killed by the Turkish prisoner who kept his gun was a stretcher bearer. And Kotta is the only person I've been able to identify who died at Beersheba who was a stretcher bearer. So it's not impossible. Like the theory we propound in the book, and we never say that it's more than a theory, is that... Um, Cotter was the stretcher-bearer who was killed by a Turkish prisoner who had pretended to surrender. Uh, And that at least is consistent with the reason why there's no official report. There's plenty of um, ornate, obviously wrong stories in the press about how Cotter died. But no official account anywhere of his death And that could be because if he was killed in that way, it was an episode that the authorities would not be anxious to say much about because then they'd have to deal with the reprisals as well. Uh, And that was something that no one wanted to be publicised. But it's a theory only and uh, absent the emergence of some document that lies in a dusty archive somewhere, we're unlikely ever to know more.
0: There is a photo, and I didn't know this until I read your book, um, which purports to be Tibby Cotter, his body uh, lying on the ground uh, with the other casualties of the Battle of Bathsheba. Um, And if you see the photo, there's an X next to what is generally regarded to be Tibby's body. Um, The body is partly covered by a blanket, it seems, but you can see uh, just the side of his left face. You can see his ear and a bit of the hair. Um, Are you, as his biographer, satisfied that the photo is in fact showing Cotter's body?
1: It's been accepted as um, a photograph of Cotter for a very long time and there's no... Whilst I don't know the precise provenance of that, there's no reason to disbelieve it. Um, it's interesting in um, assessing the stories about Cotta's death because his um, trousers have been removed, uh, which suggests that he suffered a wound to the lower half of the body, um, which if that's right, enables you to discount the stories about um, Cotter being shot in the head. Um, So that if it is Cotter, then that that probably discounts 75% of the accounts of his death. Um, Mm. But, look, all we know for sure is that it's a photograph of... Australian war dead at Bathsheba and that one of the war dead was Cotter, uh and that um, it's been accepted for many years that the, the man marked with the X was him.
0: Well, let's conclude, Max, um, in discussing Tibby's legacy. Um, what do you make of his legacy today? Uh, and what public monuments or plaques is, exist uh, to remind people of his feats, either sporting or otherwise?
1: Well, I think the fact that he was um, killed in the war its um, has kept his reputation alive for longer than it might otherwise have survived he's better remembered for example than Ernie Jones who was probably roughly comparable as a cricketer Um, and you know the fact that he was killed at one of Australia's most famous battles of the first world war uh, it's uh, often said to be the last cavalry charge that in modern warfare although people who know more about this than I do dispute that uh, but um, you know certainly the, the the fact that he was killed at a very famous battle um, has has helped preserve his his reputation in in the, the public consciousness reminded of the people who said that for Elvis Presley death was a good career move well uh, I wouldn't quite go that far, but certainly the manner of Cotter's death has preserved his memory for longer than perhaps might otherwise have occurred. Um, I think he was someone who definitely brought about changes in the way the game was played, uh, and um, uh, those aren't well remembered, but I think they're genuine. Uh, so, I, th- you know, I, I think there's... Um, he's, a little bit of a legendary figure, uh, although he was, you wouldn't call him a great cricketer. You'd say he was a very good cricketer, uh, but also a very colourful one. And um, so we, there was, shortly after his death, there was a plaque installed in his memory at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Uh, almost no one now knows where that is. Uh, it's vanished. Hmm. Um, but uh, a couple of years ago, a bridge was named after him. There's a Tibby Cotter Bridge, footbridge, that goes over, I think, South Dowling Street, uh, connecting two parts of Moore Park. Uh, I've not yet met anyone who's used it. Uh, I th- <laughs> I've, I def- I've it- definitely used it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure what it's meant to do. Uh, But it's there, and it has his name on it. Um, And I think that was probably... um, uh, ..the naming of that was probably due to Rodney Cavalier, who was the chairman of the SCG Trust, who has Mm. a strong interest in the cricket of this period. Um, There is also still in the suburb of Glebe a Cotter Lane, uh, and that's not named after him. That's named after his father because um, as those of you who have lived in uh, inner city Sydney know, uh, back in the days when um, there was no indoor plumbing uh, and the dunny man came to collect uh, the refuse uh, on a, uh, a couple of times a week. Uh, there were laneways at the back of. Major streets to enable uh, access to the house for that service. Uh, And the uh, laneway at the back of the Cotter's old house, which still stands, is called Cotter Lane. Uh, So if you want to find out where he lived as a boy, you just look up Cotter Lane Glebe and that's where he is.
0: I'm sure, Max, there are a few of my listeners uh, who have crossed or used. Tibby Cotter Bridge. Um, for those of you who don't know, it is an unusual bridge um, uh, in that the two ends, the bookends, seem to curl around uh, before you even get anywhere. So if you're uh, running partially late to a football or cricket match at the Sydney Cricket Ground, uh, if you cross the Tibby Cotta Bridge, you will definitely be late. Um, seems like you've walked a mile and you're still not halfway there um but i suppose uh we should be grateful that um uh, such a large monument exists uh in tibby's name after all these years mm. um uh, max uh, he- here's the final question which i put to all of my guests and that is what do you think tibby would have made of modern cricket? And by that I mean T Twenty cricket, day night cricket. Um, do you think he would have? Do you think he would have thrived?
1: Well, um, look, potentially tremendously well, uh, but modern cricket is nothing if not professional, uh, and so he would not survive in high level modern cricket with the approach that he had in the era when he played would would have had real difficulty with the discipline required to be a modern professional cricketer. That said, if he were able to come to terms with that, you could imagine him being um, quite an extraordinary T20 cricketer, perhaps in the mould of an Andre Russell Someone who can bowl fast and come out and hit three sixes in an over—that—that um, that kind of cricket was made for him. Um, now, you know, um, there, there are all sorts of caveats that come with that. Um, you can equally imagine him bowling seven leg side wides in an over, um, but um, if if he could have. Disciplined himself to the uh, regimentation required to prepare and perform consistently, um, then you can imagine him having uh, uh, an absolutely explosive impact in short-form cricket. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so I think I think he could have had uh, a terrific impact in the modern game, um, but. Uh, you know his his kind of player is rare now, because um, the need for consistency, the need for um, reliability, um, has to a large extent removed his kind of unpredictable, explosive play from from the modern game.
0: And not to mention the twenty four seven news cycle, which may have caught him out a few times um yeah. well thank you max for joining me on the podcast today um it's been excellent actually very enlightening uh hearing you recall the life and times of Tibby cotter uh just wonderful i would encourage all my listeners to read your book tb cotter fast bowler larrikin anzac uh, if they can get a hands on a copy but uh thanks for joining me here today max
1: Thank you very much.
0: That's all from me. Be sure to follow the podcast on social media and you can write to me at goldenageofcricket at gmail.com. My name is Tom Ford and until next time, it's bye for now.